Good morning. It was a beautiful drive um, up to CBC Day, right? The, the leaves are turning and coming out of the city. Um, it's, I have to admit, it's one of the chief pleasures of coming here besides seeing all of you, um, is actually just seeing the beauty of the trees and the environment. Um, and so it's good to be with you. And uh, thanks as always for your welcome. And it looks like the kids have sorted themselves out and know where they're going. In case any of you are worried that they're milling around aimlessly in the back. They're doing well. Let me pray for us um, as we listen for God's word today. Lord, you are good, and um, we're grateful for your goodness, which is manifest in the beauty of the environment around us, in the beauty of the people uh, who surround us now, um, in the beauty of who you reveal yourself to be to us. Uh, your mercies are new every morning, and so uh, awaken us to that, um, ready us to receive that, and then... Um, Prepare praise for yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's this old saying that most of us know and have heard, and I can't quite remember who said it, and I didn't look it up on Google. Uh, right? But something about God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, being one of the chief ways that we understand what grace looks like. Right, In spite of our own brokenness, in spite of uh, the ways that the world... Um, causes pain and suffering, we still believe God accomplishes his purposes. And while it's a great truth in the large scale, um, it's often harder to see how that actually happens in the small scale. Uh, and so the story that we're looking at today, this funny uh, parallel between Ishmael and Isaac, I think gives us a small case study of how God seems to still create beauty out of a very broken situation. And so we're going to spend most of our time looking at um, the situation with Ishmael in Genesis 21, uh, because I was just captivated by that story, again, as I looked at it. Um, and it starts at chapter 21, verse 8, which we didn't read. So if you have your Bibles or you can grab one of the chair Bibles, please look at it. But in Genesis 21, um, last week I know uh, Dick helped us look at the, kind of the contrast between the child of promise and the child um, really of human manipulation striving, right? That's the, that's the Genesis story for Isaac and Ishmael that Abraham's been invited to trust God. He's been um, reminded by God on numerous occasions, I will come through to you. I will provide an heir for you. And in the end, he and Sarah decide, you know, we can't really wait much longer. Let's just make a solution for ourselves. And so Sarah gives her uh, slave, Hagar, who they probably acquired while the family was sojourning in Egypt, to Abraham and says, you know, have a child with her, and then we'll just have that child as our child. And it goes horribly wrong, as you know. Uh, Hagar does become pregnant, and as might be expected, she begins to despise Sarah, her owner, her mistress, because she's provided for the master what Sarah has been unable to do. And so Sarah starts to abuse her. Hagar runs. And then in a beautiful scene, God sees Hagar at that moment. Hagar actually names God the God who sees. She's one of the only people in Scripture who ever gives God a name, as opposed to God revealing a name. And uh, God says, I see you. Go back. Uh, I promise good to your descendants. They're going to be a multitude, um, as great as the stars in the sky. Don't worry. Go back. And so they make an uneasy peace for four, uh, about nine or so years, 11 or so years um, until all of a sudden Sarah does have a child. And so you pick up the story uh, in Genesis 8, 
Uh, it says, the child Isaac grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Because this really represents the child has survived, right? It's gone past birth. Um, it's lived through the weaning process, and so it's healthy, and the chances that it's going to survive in adulthood have increased dramatically. The child is probably two or three at this point, uh, Isaac. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son, Isaac. This matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. And one of the ways that I think you see um, the way God creates these straight lines with these very crooked sticks is um, sometimes he needs to create straight lines out of the crooked sticks that we are because we sin and we distort and we destroy and we hurt. Right? I mean, this little snapshot that I just read, um, the precipitating factors of seeing God's goodness are really embedded in um, terrible, a terrible mix of human pettiness, jealousy, sinfulness, and self-absorption, aren't they? I mean, think about this. So um, it's unclear what Ishmael and Isaac were doing. Um, the word in the newest version of the NIV is um, Ishmael seems to be mocking. Uh, some of the older versions talk about playing, but there's um, a sense underlying the word playing that um, there's something inappropriate going on. Uh, Isaac's name was laughter, and this is kind of a form of laughter that might be thought of as mocking, as sneering, maybe even some suggestion that there was a little physical abusiveness going on. But there's something about how Ishmael's dealing with Isaac that sets Sarah off. Um, there seems to be taunting involved. Sarah then responds immediately with jealousy for her son, which at some level any parent understands, right? You want the best for your own child, but it manifests not in how do we treat this slave woman's child who, it's interesting, Ishmael doesn't get named by any of the characters here. He's just that boy, that son, right? He doesn't even have dignity in that way. Um, Sarah takes no ownership of the fact that I created the conditions for his birth. I, in fact, asked for him to be born. Um, instead, Sarah responds with, he may compete with my child, and he makes me feel unsafe for my child, so get rid of him and get rid of that woman that you had that relationship with. Right? She takes no responsibility and immediately responds with jealousy, a certain lack of, um, a certain pettiness, um, and maybe a certain lack of faith that God is really going to provide. Um, it's interesting that she waits until Isaac is weaned, when she knows that there will be a child for the family that survives, that she finally goes, okay, the spare can go now, right? We don't need that one anymore. My child will survive. And then in verse 11, what's striking me is Abraham's too much of a coward to make a decision. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, but he doesn't choose. He doesn't seem to make a decision. Um, I admit, I have a bad personality because I'm pretty much the kind of person where if you tell me you have to choose between me and this other person, I will choose the other person. Almost always because um, I refuse to be boxed in by that. And I remember when um, uh, I was dating Jen, who my parents obviously like because she's smart. Uh, she happened to fit the ethnic criteria that they were secretly longing to. And she speaks Chinese. And right, I mean, she fits a lot of the criteria that my parents were happy with. But we had talked at one point, what would we ever do? if a parent disapproved of our choice. And I remember telling Jen, you know, um, whoever tells me you choose between me or them will lose uh, because um, I don't like blackmail that way, right? But Abraham, 
His wife says, get rid of your son. Obviously, I love my son. And he just freezes in that moment, um, unable to say decisively what should happen. Right? There's nothing pleasant about the beginning of this story other than you're celebrating the weaning of Isaac. What's astounding me between pettiness and potential abuse, between cowardice and a lack of faith, is that God still somehow uses all of the sinful behavior to accomplish his own purposes, uh, which is to make Isaac the heir to the promise that he's made Abraham, right? Which is exactly what God seems to say in verses 12 to 13. Um, God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. God seems to say, look, this is a terrible, dysfunctional family writ large, right? This could be a television drama in the evening, and I'm still going to accomplish my purposes through it. I'm still going to make something amazing, miraculous, and delightful through it. Now, let's be clear. This doesn't justify people's behavior in any way. Ishmael is still mocking, teasing, or somehow abusing Isaac. Sarah is still being petty, jealous, um, and ungracious, and irresponsible. Abraham's still being a coward for un being unable to say, this is my child too, I'm not going to do this. Right? In spite of all of that wrongness, there's no justification of their behavior. But it's... Amazing that God says, in spite of the dysfunction that you all and your family have created, I'm going to accomplish my purposes through you. I think this gives all of us right, some comfort that we can actually offer up the sinful choices of our past to God and ask him to make something in, out of them which still will glorify him. Now, for some of you, this isn't really a big deal. You've lived a, lived a pretty nice, sinless life. And so for those of you who, for whom it doesn't apply, you can momentarily uh, doze off or consider the glory of God. For those of us um, who sinned, uh, who failed, um, not just in small ways, but sometimes in dramatic ways, uh, for any of us who feel just guilt or shame over the things that we've done or the things that we've left undone, uh, for people like me, who just, it's so much easier to think about the sins I've committed and the trust that I've broken um, and the failures of nerve and conviction that haunt me all the time. To actually believe that in spite of all of that, through all of that, around all of that, God is still able to say, I will glorify myself. I will accomplish my purposes I will use even your terrible mistakes to weave it together with all of the good that's being done into something which is ultimately beautiful. It doesn't arrange our, um, eliminate our culpability for our sin, right? It doesn't take away um, our responsibility for confession. But it gives us hope, doesn't it? Isn't ultimately that's what happens at the cross, right? God takes all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our shame, and then he magnifies his own glory through it. Because he actually demonstrates he's unalterably holy and that he will judge sin. And he demonstrates his mercy at the same time by placing himself in our place and dying on our behalf. Right? He shows his incredible love for us as well as his incredible wisdom that somehow he can be both just and merciful perfectly and accomplish everything that we need that we can't do for ourselves by himself. It's good news embedded in this terrible family situation. And for those of us who struggle with guilt or shame, it's incredible hope. 
It doesn't justify what we've done, but we can have some confidence God will take the most broken part of our past and still create something beautiful at the end of it. And then the glory will go to him, and we'll be able to worship and praise him for that. Sometimes when we sin, God can take our broken, crooked stick and still make something straight out of it. Sometimes, though, it's not just that when we sin, God does this, but actually sometimes we're the victim of other people's sins. Um, now, I think often of Hagar and Ishmael in this circumstance, and the lectionary reading was interesting. It talked about the promise. Um, it's those middle verses that really capture my attention as well. Right? So God says, go ahead, send them off. I promise I will do good by them. So at the beginning in verse 14, it says, Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down under about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. Right? Now, Hagar's hands are not entirely clean in this situation, right? We know from chapter 16, she disdains Sarah, and this may have been Sarah's revenge on her. Um, but there is something about being a woman in that culture where you're totally at the mercy of the master. There's something about being a boy in that situation, and it's likely Ishmael's about 14 years old, so he's not a child per se, but he's the wife of, at best, the second wife, at worst, of the slave woman. Um, who were sent off into the desert. It may say something about the nature of Sarah's revenge that all Abraham can really find for them, despite his own great wealth and resources, is that he gives them enough food that they can carry on their back and enough water that they can carry on their shoulders. Right? For a man who had cattle, who had donkeys, who had sheep, who had servants, um, it's clear at some point somebody said, you're not giving them anything they can't carry away on their own backs. And... Abraham meets them early in the morning, maybe as a gesture of mercy, you can at least start your journey before it gets too hot. And they just begin to walk. They walk into a dry and deserty place. It's not quite a desert, but it might as well be. And after a certain period of time, they've drunk the water. Um, the boy begins to suffer, and um, the image, right, is uh, Hagar takes her son, drags him to lie under a tree in the hopes that his passing will at least be gentle, if not smooth. She believes he's going to die. She believes she's going to die. Uh, they have no tools. They have nothing, right? Um, Hagar might have had dirty hands in the way that she had dealt with Sarah earlier, but in this case, uh, she has no power to respond, no way to protect herself. She's really the victim of somebody else's sin. What's, I think, a word of hope for us in this situation is how God then reaches out into that situation and intersects it. Look at verses 17 through 21. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. When he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. God intersects this story, even when 
Um, Hagar and Ishmael are really the victims of, I think, Sarah's sin in this case. Now, let's be clear. This isn't a promise that we won't suffer or that they did not suffer, right? Um, Hagar and Ishmael suffered rejection by Abraham, abandonment by that family system, the loss of resources, incredible insecurity. Um, it talks about how Ishmael uh, was... Uh, became an archer because he lived in the desert, right? After being in a herding, shepherding family, they're now reduced back to being hunter-gatherers, right? There's a significant loss of economic security for that family as well. They've taken a step down in downward mobility. This isn't a Bible story where it says, you know what? Even if you're the victim, God will make everything right for you. There is suffering and pain involved, right? There is brokenness that's caused. Um, and this is not a promise I want to suggest, this short story that God... Uh, from God that all suffering ends with blessing. The reality is, um, if we're honest, and where else can you be honest but at church, um, people die because of other people's sins. They're damaged physically, emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually by the sins of others. Some people will bear the scars of uh, the abuse or the sin of others um, until the day they die. It would be wrong and, I think, unfair to the people who've suffered the sins of others to say, God will make it all right in the end, right? It, it's just there's going to be blessing at the end of it. What this story at least suggests is that God reminds Hagar that she's neither unseen nor unheard in her suffering. God says to her, I've heard the cry of your child. And I'm speaking with you now. Listen for my voice. Obey what I command you to do. And it will be enough in that moment. For Hagar, it was enough to get water to give her son just enough water so they can make the next step of their journey. I think for a lot of the people I know who suffered as the result of the sins of others, It's enough uh, to move on one more day in spite of the broken relationship. To experience a little bit more healing in the day to come from the pain that they've experienced the day before. To begin to rebuild their lives in small ways, even if the big things seem to be taken away. It's, it's ultimately the promise that God gives us in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, where he says, when the hosts of uh, the people of God are gathered before him at the end of time, there will be a time when you will journey, the sun will no longer beat on you by day, nor um, will you be worried about the things at night. I will wipe away every tear from your eye. And it reminds us to put in lar the larger perspective that uh, for those of us who've been the victims of the sins of others, if all we do is measure recompense, um, and healing by our current condition in the world, by um, how long we live, it's too short of a measure compared to the eternal perspective that God has. That our lives continue past death, and even those who lose their life as the result of the sins of others will one day stand before God and he will wipe away the tears from their eyes. He will provide them the water that they need, the food that they long for, so that never again will they hunger, and never again will they thirst that if we really believe what the scripture says about the nature, the eternal nature of human beings, then God's justification is not merely what occurs in this lifetime, but actually what occurs across the span of eternity. And that nobody dies unseen, unheard, 
uncared for or unlistened to by God. It's, I think, the motivation, right, that drives um, so many people. Um, and there's something powerful about being seen and heard in those situations, isn't there? Something that actually is really critical in that process, if you've been wronged, to know that at least someone, especially the ultimate judge, has seen what's happened, knows what's happened, has listened to what's happened. In a small way, it's why when you're driving down the highway, you see all those small memorials, right, attached to the side of the road where car crashes have occurred, because that family wants to say, somebody must take notice of what happened here. Right? It's why we build larger memorials for national tragedies. It's why we, take, um, we have anniversary dates of people's deaths or of things that go along, and we stop and we pause and remember. It's why, um, you know, more than a decade later now, on 9-11 down, uh, downtown in New York City, there will always be a pause as families gather and remember and reflect, pray and continue to grieve. Because we want somebody to know that somebody has observed, somebody has heard, and somebody is paying attention. And the beautiful thing that this passage tells us, at least, is when you're the victim of somebody else's sin, you can have confidence that God sees and God hears. And it's how God reveals himself to Hagar in that situation, isn't it? In, verse, in chapter 16, when Hagar runs from Sarah while she's pregnant, she realizes God sees me in my distress and gives him that name. And now God says, I'm not just the God who sees, I'm also the God who hears and I'm the God who responds. It's actually the beautiful thing about the meditation that was written uh, for this passage as well that's in your bulletin. Um, Hagar has confidence in who this is. Um, InterVarsity uh, just finished a, uh, it was a 10-day, 17-campus, 115-event evangelistic justice event uh, just a week ago. Um, we're still reeling from it. Most of us feel like we've uh, finished three all-nighters in a row, and um, I was talking with a friend, and we said, oh, yeah, we both are collapsing and falling asleep in our children's rooms while we're trying to put them down to sleep. Uh, my wife said, yeah, yeah, the kids keep going like, mama, make dad stop snoring, we're trying to sleep, and it was, I'm just out. <laughs> Um, I appreciate your prayers for it. I mentioned it the last time we are here. It was called the Price of Life Campaign. Um, we used the uh, lens of human trafficking in order to focus people's attention to justice and then from justice to look at the justice and the mercy of God. Um, on those 17 campuses, we had, I think the final number was something like 12,643 people participated at one of our events. We know of over 5,000 students who heard the gospel clearly, sometimes one-on-one. -on -one at a station on campus or in a larger group context, we saw at least 263 people come to faith that we know of so far. Um, we had everybody from college presidents attend our events uh, to um, speakers who uh, were rescued from human trafficking. And so thanks for your prayers for that. Um, one of the stories that was told that week was of a woman named Elizabeth. I think I may have shared this before. Um, she was a woman, a, really a girl, uh, about 12 or 13, who was taken from her family in Thailand, uh, brought to Bangkok and then put into um, sexual slavery, right? Um, often having um, 10 to 20 people uh, visit her daily. Um, and when uh, International Justice Mission finally rescued her and they found the room where she was being kept, they noticed on the wall, written really in childish script, but she had been enslaved in that way for several years, um, the words of Psalm 27, because Elizabeth had grown up in a Christian family. And on the walls where she could see it from her bed, uh, each of those hours, days, and years was, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? 
Um, one thing I asked from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. She wrote the entire psalm out so that as she was really being brutalized and raped hour after hour, she could turn to the scriptures because for her in that moment, what counted was she knew that God was watching. Not in a terrible voyeuristic way, but in an intimate way saying, I see your suffering, I hear your cries of pain. I'm the God who is with you. And for her during that season, that was enough to sustain her and can keep her. And as she has been rescued and then helped rescue the other women who are trapped in the brothel with her, then continue to lead um, in the fight against trafficking in um, Southeast Asia, um, it's confidence that she's heard, that she's seen, and that she's known. Let me say, um, for some of us, it may not be that we're really the victim of other people's sins per se. Um, I mean, all of us are at some level. You can't live in the society without being the victim of somebody else's sin, right? Uh, we, all, we live in a world filled with pettiness and brokenness, of broken relationships, of oppressive systems and structures. Um, sometimes, though, uh, what really strikes us is we wonder if God really cares or notices us because we don't seem to be that important to him. Um, I don't know if you feel this way. It may be because I hang out with all these other professional Christians who seem to accomplish much more with their lives than I do. Um, or you see, you know, like you go, oh, that author, you know, has sold far more books than people I will ever talk to. Or you see people just in your own congregation, you think they are so godly, so nice. They're always ministering to somebody next to them. And honestly, all I can manage right now is not to just be infuriated by how messy my children are, right? I mean, you're just working at totally different levels. Like they're caring for the poor and the people in the nursing home. And all I can do is not just scream in agony every hour of the day. That's probably a little too self-revealing there. But... Um, what I, the other thing I love about this passage, or one of the things I love about this passage, is really Ishmael and Hagar are bystanders in the larger biblical drama. Right? I mean, God sets it up that way. The line of promise, the story of promise is going to continue with their son Isaac. Um, Ishmael uh, isn't central to that story. Ishmael and Hagar will play very little role in that story. Um, they're, um, at best, secondary characters. They're, they're the walk-on parts in the biblical story. And what I love about this is that God still sees them and notices them. God still promises good to them. Though they're not part of the central story of redemption, God says they're still part of my people. I'm going to care for them. I'll provide for you. Do not worry, Hagar. And for all of us who've ever struggled with a sense of insignificance, or I'm not, I mean, we're all the heroes of our own story in many ways, but you realize, eh, I'm a kind of bit player in the overall scheme of things. Um, for those of you who've ever wrestled with that, like I sometimes do, God seems to say through this story, don't worry. I see you. I know the part that you're going to play. I'm going to provide for you. You're still important to me. And every, what's interesting about the way the lectionary has set up the story, right, is the promises made to uh, Isaac, right, you'll have wealth, you'll have lands, you'll have children are the exact same things that Ishmael also gets as part of God's promise to him. Partially because he's descended from Abraham, but I think partially just out of God's care. For the two-bit players and for all of us who play small roles in the great drama of redemption, God sees us, God hears us, and God knows us. Let me conclude with this. Not, it's not just that God writes straight lines with crooked sticks when we sin. Thanks be to God, he does. Or when we've been sinned against. Thanks be to God, he does. Um, sometimes we just don't believe. We kind of lose hope. Right? It's not external to us. Um, it's not what we've done. It's just our hearts grow weak and tired. 
Um, and I think Hagar kind of gives up in this story a little bit, right? She lays her boy down to die, and she walks away far enough away where she goes, I just won't be able to see him die, right? In some ways, it's all that a mother can do. Either I can be with him, and she just cannot bear to see her child suffer. Understandable. Um, what's interesting to me is that the way the passage sets this up, God responds to her and says... Um, in verse 17, what's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Uh, lift the boy up and take him by hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Why is it her son's prayers that are being heard? Why not her prayers? Now, some people would say, well, you know, it's a woman-man thing. God's listening to the boy. And I don't think that's it. I suspect Hagar has lost hope, right? As any parent knows, you don't abandon your child if you have a glimmer of hope. You would never leave your child far off where you cannot see them if you thought there was any possibility of hope left. Hagar is no longer able to pray, I think. Right? She has no vision for the future. She's living in despair. Um, it's interesting. Um, Hagar doesn't remember the promise God gave her in Genesis 16, 10 years earlier, which is, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Do not worry, Hagar. Your descendants will prosper. All she can see is my son is going to die and won't make it. She doesn't remember what she herself named God in Genesis uh, 16, um, verse 13. You were the God who sees. She doesn't remember her own story, which was last time I went out into the wilderness by myself and thought I was going to die. God spoke to me and saved me and sent me back. Right? She could remember none of that. And what I love and I'm so grateful for is that God still listens to her and finds her even when she can no longer believe. And what I love especially is that sometimes it's the prayer of other people that carry you, right? Because what God says, I've heard your boys cry. I've heard him praying. And so now I'm going to speak to you, Hagar. Because for many of us, I suspect, we've all hit places in our life where we just cannot pray. We can't muster up the energy, the passion, or the will to offer a prayer to God. And that's when I think being part of a community of God counts. I'm sure there have been times in my life where I have just been unable to continue on in faith. And it's the prayer of my parents, the people at my church, um, the woman who actually used to pack me a care package uh, when I was a college student. She used to send me a card every birthday saying, I'm praying for you all the time. Right? She was, um, in the years where it was difficult to engage with my parents because, you know, you're trying to individuate, it was so helpful to have another parent, aged person, say, I love you unconditionally. I have no expectations for you. All I have is my prayers and my hope for you. Right? I still stay in touch with her. Sometimes it's the prayer of those people. For me, it's the people who pray for me and the ministry I do with InterVarsity. It's their prayers that sustain me when I can't pray myself. It's why we have to be in community for one another, why we pray for one another up front. On Sunday, I love the prayer that you prayed this morning. It was beautiful and perfectly appropriate for the passage. Right? The goodness of God on behalf of others. We pray that into a reality. And for Hagar, it was Ishmael's prayers that carried her forward. And God says, I heard your son interceding, and so now I'm going to speak to you. And what I love is sometimes when we can't even believe, God miraculously intervenes in our life. And God opens her eyes and says, right there, you can't see it right now, but right there, there's a well. Go get water for yourself. Um, it, I want to suggest, um, this, is, this suggests two things for me. One of which is, uh, brothers and sisters, one of the best gifts that you will offer one another is the prayers that you pray for one another. 
um, because there will be a time for everybody in this congregation where we'll be unable to pray for ourselves. And to know that other people are interceding for us and have prayed for us and have lifted us up will make a world of difference. Not that God wouldn't act if somebody wasn't praying for you, but um, what hope and encouragement it gives when you have no words for yourself to know that somebody's lifting you up. Let me suggest the other discipline that might be important for us is actually are the spiritual disciplines, that there is something about the discipline and practice of placing yourself in God's presence, of immersing yourself in scripture, of having the great hymns and choruses of the faith echoing through your head that really can carry you um, when your heart cannot carry you alone. I think that's actually one of the dangers of our current worship culture. Not that I'm a, uh, a worship war person, but um, there's a kind of trendiness about the newest song. And I find there's something about songs that you've sung over decades that get embedded in your head so deeply that um, there's songs that I sung you know, hundreds of times as a child that come, still come to me now uh, that are important that songs I've only sung you know, uh, a half a hundred times because it was popular five years ago but no longer is, don't stick. Um, and in my case, with the Trish and I grew up in, it's some of the old hymns, right? They just echo through my head. And sometimes when I have no words, they come to mind. I'm thinking about this in particular because um, I think of my friend Susie Geddert, who uh, died of brain cancer just um, about a month or so ago. Uh, Susie was in her later 50s. She had a son who had just started college, a son who's finishing high school. She'd been diagnosed with brain cancer three or four years ago, went into remission, um, but uh, this past January began to notice signs that her memory was failing again. Um, she was having problems finding words, uh, and they went in and found the cancer had returned. And normally with the kind of cancer that she has, you die within three or four months of the cancer returning. Um, but this dragged on for her and her family for um, well, about 10 months. And um, it was a, a, a fast but uh, slow decline. So um, she began to lose words. By March or April, she really couldn't speak anymore. Or actually, by February, she couldn't speak anymore. Um, by uh, April, May, her body had started to contort as the brain began to distort and other things began to go wrong. And her last months of her life, right, um, uh, unable to communicate, unable to read, really, barely able to process her surroundings. Um, her husband, in this current era, of course, um, is a pastor, but also started blogging to keep friends and family updated. And what was striking, as I was reading through the last four or five months of the blog was um, even as she lost her ability to communicate clearly, even as she lost her ability to receive much, uh, Barry said it was striking that um, throughout the last two months of her life, the two words she could get out constantly was love and thanks. When people would do something kind to her, in a almost muscle memory kind of way, the rote patterns of her brain overrode what the cancer was doing, and she was still able to gasp out, even until the last two or three days of her life, thanks. And when Barry would hold her, as he did during the last days of her life, she, could she would just respond with love. It was a great lesson for me, in part, um, I want to go out like that. <laughs> However I go out, if I have only two words left to say, I hope there's something like thanks and love. But it says something about the discipline with which she lives her life. Over the course of her life, in the decades that I knew her, um, those are the two words that would best define her. She was quick to say, I love you, and quick to say thank you to God and to other people around her. And there's something about the discipline 
of having done it not just every now and then, but day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, to when everything else is stripped away, the essential part of her soul is to always say thanks and love. And for those of us who might struggle because sometimes we just lose heart or lose faith, embracing those disciplines that move, um, that ground our souls in those patterns which allow us to respond with faith and thankfulness and love, sometimes will carry us when we are no longer to carry ourselves. Hagar experiences in this passage that God, God is the God who sees and the God who hears, the God who cares for her. I think it's amazing that sometimes because of our own sin, we get in our own way and God's still able to say, no matter how broken your past, I will create something beautiful, delightful, that glorifies me in the future. Let go of your shame and guilt. The cross has dealt with it all. Sometimes when we're the victims of other people's sin and we see no future for ourselves, God just says, do not worry. I see you and I hear you. You are not forgotten in this. You have a judge and an advocate on your side, and one day I will wipe away every tear from your eye. And even if you lose hope and your stick is broken beyond repair, do not worry. The prayers of the body of Christ can carry you, and I will still be there for you, and I will provide for you in miraculous ways. Just continue to wait and listen. I am the God who sees and the God who hears. I'm the God who takes that kind of broken stick that you are, all crooked and gnarled. I will still write something straight out of it. And in the end of time, we will stand with God. And I think part of the glory of God will be, we will stand back and go, how did you make something so beautiful out of something so broken as this? Praise be to God. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you um, for the ways that you redeem me in my sin, um, that you speak to me uh, when I feel wronged, and even when I have no hope for myself, the body of Christ has, still has hope for me and holds me up in front of you, and you remind me you are there. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as we struggle with sin or being sinned against, hope or hopelessness, reveal yourself to be the God who sees and the God who hears. And then uh, may that be enough to carry us through the day to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.